0: Behind the Noise, with Adam Bornstein, Behind the Noise, Behind the Noise.
1: Episode 5. This is the Behind the Noise Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Bornstein. It's Thursday, March 12th. Earlier this week, new research was published by John Kelly of Harvard Medical School, which debunked the notion that addiction treatment based on Alcoholics Anonymous, or AA, does not work as well as scientifically proven treatments for alcohol addiction. The analysis found that AA and AA Connected 12-step programs had 20% improved abstinence rates over a period of 12 months compared to other therapies. According to Kelly, AA creates a socially engaged fellowship. It's a social network that can attract and engage people longer term which reduces the risk of relapse. This notion of social engagement and community cohesion is an important message, especially as thousands of communities struggle with the economic and psychological tension created by COVID-19, this pandemic which is engulfing the world. This week's podcast features Sophie Blackstad, CEO and founder of Hive Online, where she talks about the role of blockchain, behavior economics, and good old compassion in support of community cohesion and creating social and economic opportunities for vulnerable and destitute communities. So join us as we go to the heart of the issues and get behind the noise, episode five. The Danish Red Cross's award-winning innovative finance and systems change team is on the clock 24-7, spinning up and developing scalable, commercially viable, and ecosystem-driven solutions and mechanisms for a complex and fluid humanitarian universe. Interested in being inspired? Tweet the team at DRC Innovation. It was the end of August 2019 and my colleague Casper and I were biking over from a meeting with IFU, Denmark's development bank, to meet Sophie Blackstad, CEO and founder of Hive Online. So as we sat in Sophie's office, I was struck by her ingenuity and creativity, but really it was her sincere passion to tear down barriers, inhibiting vulnerable communities from being financially and economically resilient. Seven months on, It's my great pleasure to welcome Sophie to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Adam. Great to be here.
1: So you're based in uh, Copenhagen, but you seem to be flying around everywhere.
0: That's right, yes. I've I've lived in Copenhagen for five years. It's a, it's a great place to live um, but I'm originally from the UK um, and I spend quite a lot of time in Africa um, and all over the world but particularly Africa because that's where our focus is at Hive Online, um, working with customers in sub-Saharan African countries and particularly the least developed
1: ones. So over December break we went to Namibia and went on a desert tour. The desert tour is essentially a uh, three-hour overland drive looking for little five, snakes, scorpions, uh, geckos, chameleons. I think what fascinated my kids most were the chameleons and how they changed their color of the skin depending on the temperature, and the geckos, how they've adapted their feet to be able to run very quickly on the desert sand. So adaptability, agility... Are definitely key characteristics to successful tech entrepreneurs like yourself. I know you have several unique skills. Could you tell us a little bit about your background?
0: Yes, of course. So um, I started out my career actually um, in, uh, in publishing a long, long time ago um, and set up my own small business about 30 years ago, um, at which point I bought some computers and discovered that I was quite good at, at um, doing stuff with computers. Um so I taught myself um well eventually twelve programming languages and quite a lot about infrastructure um and after my business went belly up because I had no no clue what I was doing. Um I ended up um in banking for nearly thirty years. Um first of all building technology for international banks. Um, I've built five core banking systems and various payment systems. Um, and then um, I transitioned into infrastructure and, and eventually business transformation. So I, I had the opportunity to learn a lot about um, international finance, um, how the banking system works and, and how economies work. Um, and uh, throughout my career, which was a a, a hodgepodge of different kinds of roles in in different countries um, all over the place. I I learned a lot about um, developing economies and and how finance works or doesn't work in developing economies. Um, And so I became passionate about um, supporting um, particularly underserved businesses um, with um, communities of businesses, um, with products and services which banks are not able to provide or not very good at providing. Um, and uh, throughout my career, I've also been very curious about uh, technology, um, exploring different ways of using technology. I, I built the first online bank for UBS, which is uh, it dates me somewhat. Um, and, uh, and more recently, of course, blockchain came along. Um, and it was obvious to, to me and, and to some other people who I was working with about um, the opportunities that blockchain could give to, to underserved communities and particularly places where infrastructure isn't great and, um, and traditional services find it difficult to reach. Um, so all of these things came together um, with, with a bit of machine learning as well.
1: Interesting. So after 2007-2008 financial Armageddon, Lots of ex-bankers found themselves flocking to nonprofits and social organizations, knowing that you made a very conscious decision to work with underserved and vulnerable communities. I'm interested in understanding what energized this passion of yours. Were you sitting behind a desk? Were you locked into a boardroom, or were you just breaking bread with some pastoralists in South Sudan?
0: Oh, well, I guess you could kind of say I I, I grew up with distributed systems in a way. Um, and discovered the the opportunities and the challenges, um, particularly when I was working at Citigroup. So while I was at City, I had a portfolio of 54 countries, of which 13 were in Africa, um, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and I, I was responsible for delivering infrastructure at first. Um, and if, if you're building bank branches in places where the, the wildlife eats the infrastructure, um, or where it's simply not possible to um, to deploy infrastructure for, for, for environmental reasons, um, you have to come up with alternative solutions. Um, so we were putting VSAT systems on the roofs of branches, and sorry, VSAT is very small aperture technology. Um, is a satellite receiver, um, and and doing things which you, you you just didn't do in banks. And at the same time, I had colleagues in Russia, which of course is a vast country, um, designing um, ATM uh, automatic teller machines that can sit in the middle of nowhere, um, working wirelessly. At a time when you just didn't do that, so I was in a great environment of people who were thinking very laterally about solving problems um, to do with infrastructure. Um, but at the same time, I, I also came from a community where most of my friends and parents' friends and indeed my, my own parents ran small businesses. And I saw firsthand how difficult it is to run a small business. Um, so it, it really wasn't a great leap from the um, how to solve these seemingly impossible problems about distributed infrastructure times everyone, well, not everyone, but a lot of people in, in sub-Saharan Africa are, are running micro-businesses um and and sort of bringing those problems together in a way that probably most people didn't have that intersection of uh, of experience to to reach those conclusions I, I i think i'm safe in saying it's it's relatively unlikely that many people coming from the sort of background i did ended up working in international banks and solving infrastructure problems in sub-saharan africa
1: indeed absolutely not many people are coming with that background so i've worked in large banks and global institutions and i can tell you pushing innovation changing mindsets and building consensus and crossing that finish line relatively unbludgeoned is an art and a skill that i have yet to master so i'd like to go back on on a point you made around consensus building and i'm wondering can you tell us how you're able to accomplish this in one of the world's largest banks
0: that that is such a fantastic question and the and the answer is it's really difficult um, but sometimes external factors help a lot um, so I was at City in 2008 um, and when your share price is in the toilet it's very very easy to make change look attractive um, so I, I think I was in a, a right place right time situation then when I, I picked up the transformation portfolio um, but at the same time it's also really important to work with people Um, So, we adopted, uh, starting with Lean Six Sigma type approaches, a very people focused transformation agenda, um, where we brought people together who came from different disciplines, um, but all with a a common goal, um, to try and find solutions. So rather than doing a very top down, this is how it's going to be, approach to transformation, and rather than doing a very technology focused approach to transformation, we We started with a customer focused approach and a solution focused approach, and then applied technology to to that fix and and That was an incredibly successful approach um which I cannot claim responsibility for inventing but um i I borrowed a lot of bits from hospitality industry um and and lots of other um lots of other areas um as well as uh, learning from some great gurus from toyota and w Deming um, all the way through to um, some, some more modern thinkers about behavioural economics and things like that. So, again, just, just picking ideas from all over the place. But in terms of building consensus in an organisation, it's just so important to, to help people see how they can work together in, in a more effective way because most people hate being ineffective and inefficient, um, but often it's very difficult to have visibility of why things aren't working. And typically, people blame the system and blame the technology, rather than actually looking at the organisation and the way things are structured and the metrics that are driving their behaviours. So it was really taking a very holistic approach to transformation that worked best. Um, And I I can't say it was completely effective everywhere I worked because every organisation is culturally different. And I've worked for eight international banks, Um, and in some I was a lot more successful than others. Um, but I'm, I'm very proud of what I did in City in particular, um, and I think EBS as well.
1: I think I heard you mention behavioral economics. And I'm thinking, wow, that was just after Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize and a decade before both Michael Lewis and Richard Thale came out with books and Nobel Prizes related to um, behavioral economics. It looks to me like you're essentially using microeconomics to explain banking could you explain that a bit more
0: well well i mean the thing is if you're talking about any kind of um service delivery which is about customer interaction you've got to think in microeconomic terms as well um because people's behavior as they interact with your service um are, are influenced in the same ways that their behavior is when they interact with anything else. And of course, when it's a financial service, then a microeconomic approach is really important as well.
1: Okay. So just to recap, you're now elbows deep, innovating and system changing within a global bank, applying coats of complexity and behavioral economic theory to this troubled bank. You're making headway, and then you decide you need to take your work to another level. You need to take it in a different direction. This manifests itself in a new business that you've established called Hive Online.
0: Okay, so I, I mean, I've I've always been a deeply impatient person, um, and I the more I learned about the economy and the more I learned about the way it functions, um, the more the more I just got increasingly frustrated that it wasn't fair. Um, so so unfairness was a big driver for setting up Hive Online, um, and and also because I you know I like to fix organisations, it's fun and, and making things work better is is a great thing to do. Um, and over half the world's economy is formed of micro organisations who have more challenges building businesses, more challenges running businesses, more challenges getting access to finance than any big business does. Um, so you know, going back to the microeconomics thing, at a micro scale, everything about running a business is more difficult. And if you're um, an unsupported, unbanked, financially excluded um, and potentially socially excluded um, business owner it's it's virtually impossible and you know I'm, I'm so impressed that people are doing this I'm constantly amazed by the customers that we support and, and how they manage to build businesses without access to any of the things that big businesses have um, so it seemed to me as I said the, the, the deep sense of unfairness but also the huge opportunity to make things work better uh, on a huge scale for for millions and millions of small businesses Um, where, you know, previously I've just been doing it for one business at a time.
1: So how does Hive Online work?
0: Sure. So our our core is building reputation based on what people do. Um, So we build up a digital behavior history um, based on the financial and other types of commitments that our micro businesses make. Um, And we do that using an app, which is a progressive web app, which works on any device with a browser, um, which includes some feature phones. Um, so it's it's very easy to use um it it's it's quite intuitive um and it's it can be used by anyone in um in micro-business, but we're particularly targeting savings groups um in sub-saharan africa who um at the moment we're working with care international um which is a global ngo supporting uh, savings groups who invented the village savings and loans association model, and the reason we're doing that is these savings groups are micro businesses in themselves. Um, they're all performing some sort of commercial activity, whether it's processing produce um, or making uh, clothes or creams and lotions or food products, whatever. Um, so, really using the, um, the the business as a or the community as a business. Um, and helping them to build their reputation together. And with this reputation, um, they can then go to uh, formal lenders in in the formal banking sector, or more often in the microfinance sector, um, and demonstrate that they are genuine, reliable businesses and individuals um, at a community level, um, aggregating the risk across the community so that they can access um, more lending, build the businesses um, and also access more market, markets um, through demonstrating to people in the commercial ecosystem that they have this um, this reliability and this record. And, and that's really critical for people who don't have any kind of formal banking um, and may lack formal identity um, because we can demonstrate that they're real people, that they really work in this community and that they have this, this reliable behavior history, even if they're just saving a small amount of money every week, um, they may be taking loans from the group and paying that back, and we can show through all of these microtransactions that they are, you know, reliable and they meet their commitments.
1: So um, your basic customer then would be the VLSA or the savings banks from from a client perspective. But could you maybe talk a little bit about what exactly is the are community banks? You know, how are they set up? What are their pain points? And exactly how large is the market? Is it something that only happens in Africa, or are they can they be found globally?
0: Oh, they're all over the place. So, yes, these savings groups or ROSCAs um, or um, I mean, there's, there's lots of different flavours of them. But basically what they do <clears throat> is you get communities of people, um, usually mostly women. Um, so the communities we're supporting are in, at the moment about 90 percent women in Niger. Um, and they agree to meet certain rules. They usually appoint some uh, key holders, some some officers. Um, So in the in the care model, they have three officers, which is a secretary, a treasurer and a chair, um, who are the decision makers for the group. But um, the group also has voting rights um, to vote on decisions made by the group. Um, And they all agree to put a small amount of money into a savings pot every week. Um, Typically, they have to put in um, some money every week. And there is a cap on how much they can put in so that it's relatively fair across the group. And then they can use this pot of money. Um, both for lending to group members, um, so if an individual wants to build her business um, or if they have a medical emergency or something, um, but they also use it for commercial activities, so you know, they'll buy sacks of grain to process as a group um, and then make goods which can be sold as a group um, to increase the amount of money. Um, and typically it works in a, a, a year-long cycle Um, So at the beginning of the cycle, they will just start a group and then at the end of the cycle, everyone will take their money out of it. Um, But we find that these groups are very stable over time and and often have the same offices for many, many years um, in succession. Um, And it's been absolutely transformational. Um, It has given women particularly um, the ability to, to build financial stability Um, to have financial and economic empowerment in their communities where they often didn't have before um, and gives them some autonomy in terms of the financial decision making within their family units as well Um, the downside is that the the actual amounts of money are very small um, and uh, typically it's all cash based Um, so you asked about how many people are in these circles Well. Um, If we look at it globally, um, there's an estimated 50 million groups, um, although I think it may very well be much more than that. Um, CARE has in its portfolio about 15 million groups. um, And in Niger, there are 800,000 members, um, which is larger than the whole banking system in Niger. Um, But all of these groups are operating cash. So very few of them have formal bank accounts. Um, Many of them um, are able to, to... deposit money in a bank, um, but they, are, they can't get lending from a bank because all of the transactions are in cash. So there is no digital record of, of cash behaviour, of sort of the transactional behaviour. Um, so what we're helping them to do is to, to cross that divide between the informal and the formal sector, um, demonstrate um, the behaviours that have led to very low default rates in the groups because the social bonds are very strong. Um, and really use that to access credit um, sometimes from the institutions where they already have an account but more often from institutions which to whom they are invisible um, so these you know microfinance institutions and banks know they're out there they know that they have a very low default rate, but they literally cannot see these people so they can't they can't support them um, so that that's the big problem we are solving
1: so there's a huge amount of risk in finance risk is omnidirectional i'm sure you're acutely aware of this. So let's take your example of microfinance. From a risk management perspective this is a particularly interesting product because of the foreign exchange risk associated with cross-border transactions. So I could be a lender sitting in India and I could send money over to Nairobi and somehow you need to hedge out those different currencies. So could you explain a bit more how Hive leverages blockchain and stable coins to mitigate against some of this local foreign currency risk?
0: Yeah, sorry, I was talk to talk about the blockchain last, so it's not important, but of course, it's absolutely critical to how it functions. Um, so, yes, we have a stablecoin that is pegged against the local currency um, and we manage that on an escrow system. Um, so that's where the risk is hedged. Um, now, we can do it in a number of ways. We can either keep the liquidity within a, a microfinance institution or just have it in a bank. Um, but there will always be 100% liquidity backing the, um, the backing the stable coin. And then within the token system, within the groups, um, they have um, the, the product, obviously, of the stablecoin, and then there are two other tokens. There is a debt token um, for lending, and then there's a share token as well. Um, which means that they can own shares of the, of the pot. and um, That obviously can increase in absolute value over time or decrease, um, but we hope it increases. Um, so the stablecoin is, is a, a basic one that just pegs to the local currency, whatever that is. Um, and in the case of Niger, that's the West African fray.
1: So about a year ago, in the spring of 2019, the World Bank's IFC released their Operating Principles for Impact Management, It's meant to be used by investors to help screen impact investment opportunities and to ensure that their impact funds are managed in a robust fashion. The principles cover strategic intent and impact at exit. I believe there are 87 signatories ranging from BlackRock to Credit Suisse to Water.org. In other words, the investors are, at least on paper, throttling down on assurance and validation. Can you share some of your KPIs or feedback that you receive from your customers?
0: Well, we're still in fairly early stage rollout, but we're getting some very good feedback from the groups. Um, they have, uh, first of all, uh, the, the the ability to build up a digital reputation is so paramount to these groups. And, and that's been very clear because um, even with um, very early stage, we're seeing a lot of repeated use. Um, we're seeing some, some great statistics on, uh, on adoption. So that's been very good. Um, what we've also seen from the lender's side um, is a lot of eagerness to, to lend to these groups as well. Um, so while we're a bit too early stage to say how much people are getting um, you know, in terms of lending, um, we, we can see that there is a huge scope for this uh, across Niger and elsewhere. Um, what we know about lending in general um, across the communities that we're supporting um, in Niger and other countries um, is that the absolute amounts are quite small, um, which makes it very expensive. So we, we are working on an assumption that we can reduce the cost of lending by half, um, which obviously makes it much more attractive both to the lenders and, and to the, um, the borrowers.
1: What's the components of of a cost structure for lending? How, how do you break that out?
0: Okay, so well, the main cost of lending in, um, particularly in countries like Niger, is um, is the cost of KYC, um, and obviously then there's the the, the delinquency and default rate. Um, now, what we see in these groups is that they have a very low delinquency rate within their groups, um, which is less than two percent, um, which obviously is the sort of thing that lenders would. cut their own right arm off to get to, Um, but instead of um, lending to individuals, which obviously has a higher risk, um, we're encouraging them to lend to the group where we can aggregate risk. Um, So the the key cost components are at the moment, first of all, the cost of KYC, and secondly, the cost of transporting money. Um, So if a lender in Niger or any of the Sahel regions needs to send a loan out to a rural village um, in cash, they will have to send it using um, an armed guard, which is obviously a very high cost activity, especially if you're lending low amounts. And that's one of the things that makes it quite inaccessible. Um, And so obviously using digital cash, we can take up the cost of the armed guard. Um, which is quite a big part of it. Um, but we can also reduce the, the risk of fraud um, by um, automating the KYC in the form of this reputation that we build up. Um, so we decrease the absolute risk of lending, which means that the actual cost is much lower as well. Um, so there's, there's two components. It's KYC and it's, it's moving money around.
1: We've seen a lot of negative press with blockchain-related projects in the humanitarian space when it comes to PII, which is personally identifiable information. And I'm pretty sure this is high on your list. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about how you manage KYC process and how you store user data.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because um we we are actually a European com- company although we are working in Africa, so we actually comply with all this GDPR um, legislation so that um all the all the personal data that we collect is kept with the customer, um and we don't expose personal data um and except for that which is absolutely required by um, by KYC requirements from the lenders, um so we 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 meet the national requirements whatever those are. Um, but we we do keep um, personal data about people's interactions and transactions um, closed and and with the customer. And we only use derived data for for those sorts of interactions. So we won't say, you know, this person went to this retailer and bought this much, but we will say, um, as far as meeting commitments has met, this person has a score of X. Um, And then at an aggregate level, obviously the community has a score of X. So we avoid exposing personal data because of the way that we score people.
1: Okay. So how are user wallets managed and who's holding their private keys?
0: Yes, absolutely. So everyone's wallet is um, private and public keys. Um, We don't, uh, you know, we don't ask them to manage that key. So we do have a key management system which sits on the platform. Um, But so, so yeah, we, we hold those keys at the moment Um, And then as the users get more sophisticated, obviously they can do their own management. One of the challenges we face is that all of the wallets at the moment um, are held at group level, um, because many of these ladies don't actually have their own phones. Um, So we're we're having to keep it on the platform at the moment. But our intention is, as we progress, um, to get more local storage of value. Um, so that we can build wealth in the communities um, on people's devices as well. So we're in that transitional stage at the moment where people just don't have devices, so there's not much we can do about it yet, but we will be
1: eventually. Are the majority of users on USSD feature phones, or are you using smartphones?
0: Yeah, well, the um, the intention at the moment is to have some smartphones. So the app um, the app works on a feature phone with a browser. But Care is actually also distributing smartphones to some of the um, the officers in the groups, so that they can use it on smartphones. But yeah, it's a bit of a mixture at the moment. Um, So what we what we are working with though is um, the Kai OS operating system, Um, and I don't know if your your listeners will be familiar with that, but that's an operating system that basically converts uh, feature phones into smartphones um there are loads of different devices that have been produced that are compatible with it and what's really great about this is it means that a device that only needs charging once a week and has a price point of about twenty dollars um can operate almost like a smartphone um with some differences you can't use a touch screen for example but um um and the, and the app works on that as well so they can as as these devices roll out Um, we're able to roll out the full app to many more of these people. Whereas obviously with USSD, all we can do is send confirmations and balances and things like that, not not the full full wallet.
1: Before our call, I googled self-sovereign ID to see how many results would come up. And I got about Mm 535,000. Some of the titles were In Search of Self-Sovereign ID, Leveraging Blockchain Technology. Obviously, it's a hot topic, and every organization from IBM to PwC to the Danish Red Cross are kicking this self-sovereign ID can down the road. Uh It seems like you're making some real progress on this front.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've I've been on this self sovereign ID journey actually. Um, I first came across it with um, with MIT at Davos in um, oh, was the beginning of seventeen when I was first setting up Hive Online. So I've I've kept we've kept very closely aligned to to that concept. Um, and my my goal is to to keep the self sovereign ID, but also to make sure that the management of that ID is something that is easy for people to do because I think one of the big challenges of of self-sovereign identity is um, expecting people to to be able to manage it themselves. So there's a difference between ownership and management basically. Um, But yes, absolutely. Um, We we believe in people owning their own data. We believe in them owning their own identity. Um, And we also believe in them having the opportunity if they choose to monetize that data themselves, um, if, if if they if they want to at some point in time. So when we get more into the commercial ecosystem and more merchants are hopping into this and saying, we really want to sell to these customers, to actually give the groups themselves the opportunity to monetize that data.
1: Let's zoom out a bit, and I'd like to get your take on the future of fintech. You know What innovations are catching your eye? Is there any crossover or nexus between climate and fintech? And do you think that blockchain is actually going to be useful going forward or is it kind of the 21st century slide ruler?
0: Well, I, I, I'd like to go a little bit broader than FinTech for that. I mean, I, I, I think that well, OK, we're well just just starting closer to home. I think I think blockchain is the answer to um, to distributed um, financial systems where communities can own their own wealth and be responsible for growing their own wealth and not be dependent on centralised financial institutions, whether those mobile and money institutions or banks, or whatever. Um, and I think that there is a huge liberation opportunity, particularly for rural communities. Um, I mean, something we are developing or have developed is, is an offline mode, which um, we hope to deploy um, and enable communities who are not connected at all to um, to, to run transactions and, and interact with each other um, bef- without any connection, and then um, and then upload as as they um, as they reach connectivity. Um, now, that's hugely transformational for for enormous areas of um, of Africa and, and the rest of the developing world. Um, so I think that's pretty cool, and that's something that we are actually driving ourselves. Uh, although the technology is is obviously evolving very rapidly. Um, but something else I think is really cool, um, which is a tangential, um, um, some of the physical things that people are doing to to help these communities. I mean, there's a, there's a a company that um, that we are going to be working with, but um, through one of the accelerator programs for them, which is Mastercard's Lifehouse, massive program. Um, that is using oil drilling technology to inject clay into desert soil um, so that you can plant trees in it. And I just think that's unbelievably cool. And um, and, th- and these are the sorts of things that we need to work with as a fintech in order to progress not just the financial health, but also the environmental stability of the communities that we're working in. Um, so although we're a fintech, and we, I, I love financial technology, and I've been building financial systems all my life. Um, we, we love working with solar and with uh, water tech and with soil tech and agritech and all of those people as well. Um, and personally, I think that the combination of those technologies is what's really going to drive this community revolution.
1: A few months back, I met with IKEA Foundation here in Ethiopia. We were talking about the role of blockchain and regenerative ag systems. IKEA is really focused on the regenerative side of agriculture essentially because it describes farming and grazing practices that reverse climate change by rebuilding and restoring organic material in the soil. My sense is that biodiversity and climate conversations are moving from sustainability to regeneration. So given the communities that you work with, I'm wondering how do you think this plays out in the future?
0: Uh, absolutely, yes. I mean, if you look at the communities we're supporting, um, you know, they're at the forefront of the battle against climate change and they're losing um and you know it, it it should it shouldn't have to be a losing battle for all of them and you know obviously climate change is something that we probably can't reverse completely, but we can reverse some of the impacts and these communities will be critical to to driving that as well as um you know helping them to to survive that those ch- those changes which are ongoing at the moment um and and they're going to be critical to supporting our population as you know, we, we as a species continue growing and the need for food increases. And, you know, it's, it's not going to get any easier if, if we don't have these regenerative technologies as well.
1: Sophie, you're in this unique position of both implementing a solution and advising multilateral governing bodies like the UN and G7 on policy related to social investments and developmental influence technology. So is there anything that's in the works that excites you? Is there anything that would excite us?
0: Well, some, something that I'm very passionate about is alternative currencies, and particularly currencies based on social and natural capital. Um, now, we, we are um, helping to, uh, I guess, educate and explain how these things can work, um, and also helping policymakers to understand where they're already happening. Um, you know, your, your air miles, although you won't be using those because of coronavirus, but, you, you know, those are already a, a, a type of social capital um, and and natural capital is, is obvious for countries, um, particularly in, across Africa, where there's, you know, there's loads of, of natural resources like sunlight and um, minerals and agricultural produce, um, which, if they're expressed as as tokenized um, capital, could actually significantly increase the, the real wealth of, of communities without them having to, you know, go to the bank and actually just using the the resources that they have to, to build wealth and build stability in those environments. Um, so that, that's particularly, um, a particularly a big passion of mine, and it, it's very closely related to community finance. So we see this as an evolutionary step. And one of the things that we do is we help the central banks to understand what this means um, and what the opportunities are. Um, and obviously there are some very clever people in the central banks who, who really get it and it's 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 very exciting to see what might be happening in the next few years with this space.
1: Do you have any examples that are in the pipeline or something that you could share with us?
0: These papers don't tend to get published. Um so we're not we're not working on anything that will be um a sort of G7 or, or UN paper in this space at the moment. Um, but what I am doing is I've just started writing a new book about microeconomics and I will be covering these topics as part of that Um, so that's going to be a little while in the cooking um, but that will be coming out probably sometime next year.
1: Sophie I'm sure you're eager to finish that cup of tea that you brewed about a half hour ago before we started hopefully it's not cold but before you jump are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say the the key for me is it it is possible to help these economies transform. I think, you know, treating them as as a lost cause, as as many banks have done, just assuming that you know people have to change the way that they behave before they can change their wealth, I think is completely wrong. I think the um, you know t- taking commu- learning from communities and and taking the way that they are are working today, and helping them to to improve on that and, and make it more efficient is, you know, is a way of building community wealth and a way of, of, of helping these communities to become more sustainable. Um, so I, I don't think it's a, a lost cause at all. I think that um, economies can change. Um, and, you know, I spent my life ch- sort of building bigger things. I started with brick walls, then I st- moved to software, then I moved to banks and, you know, what's wrong with economists? <laughs>
1: What a great way to bring this full circle. We started with behavioral economics, and we're ending in some part on the same tone. It's about knowing what your user wants, creating an efficient, localized solution, and giving agency to individuals. Sophie, thank you for being with us and for helping us get behind the noise. Thank
0: you very much, Adam.
1: Behind the Noise with Adam Hornstein Behind the Noise, Behind the Noise